Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica. After the end of sanctions by the West, will Iran succeed in its efforts to find state legitimacy with Europe and the United States? And we are joined today by the author of the historical backgrounder in this issue, Corey Shockey, research fellow at the Hoover Institution and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Corey, thanks for being with us. It's a great pleasure. So this is how your piece at Strategica opens, quote, uh, open quotation mark here, whether Iran succeeds in gaining legitimacy with Europe and the United States after the end of sanctions by the West may have less to do with choices by the Western countries and more to do with internal Iranian politics. Explain what you mean by that. So I think the United States and the Western European countries who have been the drivers of sanctions activity against Iran are both willing to relax those sanctions. The Congress less so than the president, but, but still, I do think there is a desire on the part of the Western powers to make good on their part of the Iranian nuclear agreement and begin to relax sanctions on Iran. It is less clear to me, however, that the government of Iran is really willing to take that step. What I think I see happening in Iranian debates about this issue is that the prime minister who was elected to bring Iran back into you know, regular international interactions, and in particular elected to repair the relationship between Iran and the United States, that there's a lot of friction between him and the Iranian uh, religious and political establishment, Ayatollah Khamenei, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, who are not only the main military force in the government, but also major business players. Because with sanctions on, the government of Iran has been able to dole out economic opportunity, and they have predominantly done that to people in the security services. So I think there's a lot more hesitancy by the people who are currently benefiting from a closed economic system about opening that up. The religious folks, because they're worried about the political influence and westernization of society, and the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, because they're worried about losing uh, preferred economic opportunities. Let me linger for a moment on the question of sanctions. We've heard a lot mm -hmm. since this deal was struck about the potential for what they call a snapback in which the Western nations could reimpose the sanctions on Iran if they misbehave. And Corey, it seems to me that a lot of times you hear the skeptics say that maybe the US would have a stomach for that, but the Europeans will never go back to taking a harder economic line with Tehran. So, so by your lights, how likely is it that sanctions can continue or at least the threat of sanctions can continue to be used as an effective tool to deal with Iran going forward? I think it's very unlikely, either in the case of the Europeans or in the case of the United States. Let me take the Europeans first. I think from the moment we entered into negotiations with Iran, 
the Europeans agreed to join the negotiations to put uh, sanctions on Iran as a kind of quid pro quo for us backing away from regime change as our policy to Iran, which I think the Obama administration would have done whether or not they got anything for it. So I'm at least pleased they got the Europeans to agree to something in return for it. From the time we entered into negotiations, I do not believe the Europeans would have been willing to reimpose sanctions if we got an agreement, almost irrespective of what the agreement was. And so the snapback provision, I think, um, has always been a a kind of Potemkin village. Europeans aren't going to do it. Uh, U.S. sanctions, even though I believe Congress would do it, U.S. sanctions, I don't believe, can be effective without the European, in particular European uh, energy sanctions. So one of the reasons I basically support the agreement, although I don't think it's a very good one, is that I don't think the sanctions regime was sustainable, even if you didn't have an agreement. And I sure don't think it's sustainable if you do have it. So so I think that, you know, it's a it's a good story about snapback provisions. I don't believe we have the stomach to do it. And I don't believe Europeans have the stomach to do it. It's an interesting distinction that you made just there a moment ago. You think you support the agreement even though it might not have been a very good one. So make the case for me why a flawed agreement was better than no agreement at all. Yeah, um, for three basic reasons. The first and most important is that I do not believe President Obama is credibly threatening the use of force against Iran's nuclear program. I don't believe he would actually destroy Iran's nuclear program with military force. And I don't think anybody in the Middle East believes it either. So so um, that's the first main reason, because I don't think our alternative, which is the use of military force, is credible. And that means Iran would continue to proceed with their nuclear program, in my judgment. So I think our position was eroding because of the president's lack of credibility. The second reason is that, I, as, I, as I explained a minute ago, I don't think the sanctions were sustainable. From the moment we entered into the negotiations, any agreement was going to be good enough for Europeans to relax sanctions. And it's actually the European sanctions rather than ours that have the biggest effect on the Iranian economy. And the third reason I support the agreement, although I don't think it's a very good one, is that it will buy us a lot more information about what is happening in the Iranian nuclear program by virtue of the um, inspection provisions and the sustained monitoring over time. And I think that's uh, worth having because it still seems to me possible that Iran will continue to work on a nuclear weapons program. And at some point we will have to destroy that program. And I value the intelligence that we will get from the monitoring regime. When we think about how that program can play out, let me ask you what seems to be the, to my lights, the root question when we're analyzing Iran. If I can oversimplify it, it always seems to come down to the crazy or calculating question. Which, which is to ask, in your judgment, is the regime in Tehran motivated more by this sort of strident religious ideology or more at the end of the day by sort of brass tacks realpolitik? 
It's a fantastic question, but I actually think the answer is both. I think the majority of the Iranian leadership, in particular Ayatollah Khamenei, very much view Iran as a revolutionary movement, and they behave like one. They fund terrorist organizations. They try and destabilize Sunni governments in the region. They're propping up Bashar al-Assad. Uh, they have they have shipped have shipped and are shipping arms to Hezbollah and Hamas. They tried to kill the Saudi ambassador in Washington. Um, that's where I think Ayatollah Khamenei, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, and many other conservative elements in Iran are still. I do think the people of Iran have repeatedly, both in 2009 and in the elections that brought the current prime minister to power, the Iranian people would like to be a regular state, right? They, they're confident enough that they can be successful by the rules that others are successful, that they would like to be a normal state. That does not mean that either the Iranian people or the prime minister are moderates. I think we misuse that term when we talk about Iran. I think in general, um, Iranians view themselves as a country that deserves to be great and is not. Um, and so they're quite chauvinistic. They look down for the most part on other cultures of the region and beyond, which has made the work of the conservatives around Ayatollah Khamenei and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard easier. They, they have had an easier time making their case because of that. But um, we may be, we are in a situation where they're going to test that proposition, Right where Iranians will have a choice about who gets to select the next leadership of the country, even the religious leadership. And every time Iranians get a chance to vote, they vote for people more moderate than the leadership want them to vote for. So uh, whether there is a backlash uh, is the reason that I think whether Iran becomes a normal country is actually in Iranian hands, not in ours. To that point, here's a quote from your piece making much the same point you just were. Quote, Iran is on the brink of an epochal transfer of power. Supreme Leader Khamenei is old and ailing. An assembly of experts selected to determine his successor are decidedly less strident than the electors they are replacing. But whether Iran's political and economic elite permit themselves to be eased out is an open question. Close quote. So to this conversation we were just having, Corey, Iran is one of those countries where it feels like we've been told that they're on the cusp of a total <laughs> transformation for years. It, but of course it always ends up being tomorrow. So when you look at the Iran of 2016, what is there – is there anything to your mind, something that now makes this different, that makes you think we may actually be nearing an inflection point that we've never quite been able to hit in the past? That is such a fantastic question. I actually think that's the most important question. Uh, and for me, it is the elections because the Iranian government um, likes to think of itself as domestically legitimate, that people get to vote and the government respects the outcome. But that has never been true for the religious leadership of the country. 
right? The religious leadership has set the boundaries for the electoral process. Even on this most recent parliamentary election, over 6,000 people registered to be candidates and were stricken off the list because the religious leadership didn't find them suitable. So it it's a very controlled environment and one where I think all of us or a lot of a lot of Iran's friends in the West have been hoping that the Iranian people will get broader and broader franchise for their views to be reflected in their leadership. In 2009, in the parliamentary elections, the government cracked down ruthlessly on political protests for protesters who believed the government had stolen the elections in order to keep a conservative government in power. And the next set of parliamentary elections, the the religious leadership allowed a wider spectrum of, it's, it's too much to say liberal candidates, but less conservative candidates, including the guy who got elected prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think the public is trending that way, whether the religious and political leadership has always been the question about timing. And what makes now different than earlier sessions is that the new the council is going to be picking a new supreme leader. And no matter what anybody says about Iran, the decision maker in the country is not the prime minister, it's the supreme religious leader of the country. And the council that was just elected, being less conservative, may choose a, a more moderate candidate, one that would make a choice more like the Iraqi religious leadership has. Ayatollah Sistani in Iraq, for example, has chosen to keep religion out of politics to support the will of the people to have a democratic government, but not to interfere in the workings of government. And it seems to me that many Iranians would choose that if they were given the choice. So the question is whether they will be given the choice. So then the final question I'll put to you, you've sort of hinted at it I think a little bit there, but map out for me if you will the sort of forks in the road, the realistic best and worst case scenarios for Iran over the next few years. Yeah, the biggest threshold is the voting for the new supreme leader and then the negotiations that go into it. It's a little bit uncertain when that fork in the road will be hit. Because, as you mentioned earlier, the supreme leader is in ill health. And if he should die, they'll have to make a near-term choice. If they have a while to deliberate, they may make uh, – the choice may be strung out longer. During the election of, um, of Prime Minister Ahmadinejad in 2009, the election that was so contested by the Iranian public, it appeared that there were – uh, Iranian mullahs, senior religious leaders who were unwilling to support the choice of the supreme leader to put Ahmadinejad in power. And so there may be cracks in the edifice that, that come to the fore when you choose the next supreme leader. Um, a second fork in the road will be 
if sanctions, when sanctions get lifted on Iran, whether the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and the political leadership that has had the only opportunities for commercial transactions, whether they try and keep hold of those preferential opportunities or whether in relaxing sanctions, we do it in a way that allows regular Iranians to be the beneficiaries. And so first, you know, whether that happens and Iranians can, can be entrepreneurial. And then second of all, whether the IRGC and the political elites try and crack down on those opportunities. That latter part is the one that I think has the biggest potential for explosive public reaction against the regime. All right. Our guest has been Corey Shockey. You can read her essay and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting us online at hoover.org slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson. 